Hey, folks, this is Kevin on this week's episode of Risk of Here, John Flynn. He goes, yeah? How'd you like to come back to my room and fuck my brains out? And it is really easy to sweep me off my feet. (laughs) (laughs) That and more, but before that, let me tell you about some of the stuff you can find at adamandeve.com, motherfuckers. I'm going to talk specifically about stuff that I have used before. There is the Lalo Tour vibrating cock ring. This cock ring you can put on, it has an electrical pulse, so if you're walking through a sex club and some guy just walks up and grabs your dick, the joke's on him because he'll think he's been electrocuted all of a sudden. It pulsates through your whole unit. Uh, The Stronic Zway is a prostate massager. It's a very heavy-duty thing, also kind of electrified. If you're able to take a little bit more up the old wazoo than maybe the usual guy. Japanese clover nipple clamps. I love those damn things. I can only keep them on for about 10 minutes at a time. They are really nasty the way they uh, they bite at you. Pure, pure silicone lubricant. That's P-J-U-R, silicone lubricant. Amazing stuff. Kimono condoms, almost like not wearing anything. Fleshlights, you know, a lot of, you know, straight guys. Well, I mean, I guess gay guys like them too, but, you know, straight guys sometimes have a harder time finding places to stick it. Rabbits for the ladies. Ladies, come get your rabbits here. Because what good is a vibrator that doesn't tickle the clit? I think Abraham Lincoln said that. All of these very high quality products are at adamandeve.com and you know what you've got your offer code that you can use which is r-i-s-k r-i-s-k at adamandeve.com you're gonna get 10 free gifts if you use that code you're gonna get a sexy surprise for her something especially for him a third something you'll both enjoy six full length adult dvds free shipping i mean it's ridiculous at the very least you could use condoms lube one of those little silicone ringo penis rings i never leave home without one at jfk they don't even bother stopping me anymore they're just oh yeah this one no none of that stuff is weaponry it's it's all going up his butt and it could be going so very far up yours as well if you just use that offer code r-i-s-k at Adam and Eve. That's right. Adam and Eve. I said Adam Now here's the show. The show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Grant Green behind me now. I'll tell you what, this is one, one day 
that I get to be back in New York City before heading right back out on the road. JC and I went to Toronto, did one hell of a show. Holy shit, what a wonderful crowd out there in Toronto. And then we went to uh, Montreal. The purpose of that trip was no show to do. It was solely, well, JC put on the calendar, Kevin going to Montreal to suck cock, question mark. And <laughs> maybe she shouldn't have put the question mark there because it didn't happen, folks. It was kind of a bust. I was very, very, very off the wagon as far as the veganism thing goes. I don't know what the hell to tell you about that. But I was on the wagon as far as the drinking and the pot and the poppers. I was very good about all that stuff. Now, tomorrow, tomorrow I have to wake up super early in the morning because JC is really good about buying plane tickets where the departure is at a time that no human being can actually function. And the two of us are going to go out there and uh, do our Denver show on uh, Wednesday. We're, we're very excited because Jeff Barr, who edits all the episodes, we're going to be able to spend some time with him, maybe record a Stamps.com song with him. I mean, let's face it, I might complain about how busy we are, but the truth is, it's busy keeping up with all these blessings. The more wonderful people who want to open up their hearts and souls and share their stories, more wonderful towns that want to come out and support our show, you can't have too much of that kind of good thing. We're calling this week's episode Behind the Mask. These are three stories of people who found themselves trying to maintain a certain kind of persona till it started to slip. In a little bit, we're going to hear from one of my favorite people, Jude Trader Wolf. She's going to share a little bit about some of the work she's done as a therapist. But before that, the wonderful Jen Curran, a member of the famous Harvard Sailing Team sketch comedy group. Here she is now at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. It happens every month at the Nerdist showroom. This is Jen Curran with a story we call Faux Dunst. Thank you guys. I want to tell you a story that I have never told anyone before. And I told my husband he couldn't come tonight because I'm that embarrassed. Um, so I want to tell you a story that takes place in 1997. It is about me catfishing a dude on the internet before that was a thing. So I was in high school. I was a senior in high school and we had just gotten the internet at our house. So I was excited, and I was also exploring being anyone except who I was. I was desperate to like kind of get beyond being a 16-year-old senior in high school. I wanted to kind of live this whole other life, and the internet allowed me to do that. I had a best friend at the time. His name was Tim. He was also my casual sex partner, which meant that I was madly in love with him, and he was using me to get laid, right? Right? 
right we all been there look at they're nodding yep um so tim went to college a few years he was a couple years older than i was so he went to college a few years before i did and he called me my senior year and explained that there was this new thing called aol instant messenger and you could stay in touch yes oh fuck right you could stay in touch with your friends by doing this and a lot of college kids that he was meeting at school were doing that with their friends so i downloaded it and I started to kind of explore Instant Messenger because I would be waiting for him when he was like trying to sign online or whatever or coming from a class. So I would like explore what was available, right? Chat rooms, other dudes. It was exciting. Uh, I was thrilled to get to meet other people, specifically men, because I thought, A, I could make Tim, the fuck buddy, jealous, right? With what? I don't know, because I don't even think I was going to tell him about any of this, just, but just the power of knowing that I could cuckold several men at once, right? <laughs> I also was building on my self-esteem, getting to know other cities and regions of the country, and more importantly, in this online life, I was no longer a 16-year-old chubby choir kid who like only wore school musical play t-shirts. I could be anything. So I would start telling these dudes that I was a 21-year-old New York City actress. It sounded really glamorous to me, and I thought I could invent some details that sounded reasonable, and it worked. I was meeting some really interesting, well, I was meeting men. I soon met a dude who was really nice and sweet. He was 22 years old. His name was Matt Jackson, and he was a college student in Minnesota. He was a football player, and he was also like a biology or pre-med student or something else that sounded fake but cool. We really hit it off. We really liked each other. He thought I was really smart and funny. I thought he was really smart and funny. And we started talking on the phone. And I remember him saying to me, he was kind of like a Midwestern farm boy, and I remember him saying, I just really like the sound of your voice. So I told him that I was a 21-year-old New York theater actress, theater and film actress, and that I was home in Chicago uh, for just a few months in between gigs, which was a word I looked up on, on the internet. <laughs> so... Uh, he liked me too, and he sent me a photo of himself. And he looked just like he had described. He was 22. He was a hunk. He was like a, he was like a football player. It was like amazing. And I was weird. So this was not going to be happening if it wasn't happening this way, right? And the photo he sent me, sent me in the mail because you couldn't send photos on the internet then. I don't think anybody knew. We definitely didn't know how to do that. I don't think you could do that. So he sent it like in the real mail, right? Then he decided that he wanted me to send him a photo back. So I sat one night looking very carefully at my high school yearbook photo from that year, knowing that there was no possible way I could send this guy this photo. I was way too young and way too not hot to send him this photo. I needed to look a lot older and a lot sexier. So I started looking through the other photos that girls had given me. Because remember when you did that, when you get the little pocket-sized photos and trade them and like write your name in a heart in the back? So Debbie Blinder gave me her photo, and she looked fucking hot as fuck and old, which is what I needed, right? She was wearing makeup. She was smiling. She looked so incredible. So I sent him her photo. She was also really talented and popular, and I did want to be her in real life, also in this fake relationship. I wanted to be her. And this seemed like the perfect plan, right? I was going to send this to him. He got it in the mail a few days later. He opened it up. He loved it. We started having phone sex. 
Oh, God, what was I doing? I was 16 years old. I had no idea how to have phone sex or what that really meant. I had only had sex with one other person, Tim, who I loved and didn't love me. And we'd never had... I'd only had regular sex with him. We hadn't had phone sex. So I was just mimicking what I had seen, like, on late-night Lifetime movies or, like, the really late, like phone sex hotline commercials, which is really just a lot of like, ooh, and ah. And you say dirty words in addition to regular words that you say sexy. So you say all words sexy even if they're not like, talk to you Wednesday. And he loved it. I also used his name a lot. Matt, Matt, oh, Matt. He loved it. And our relationship became even closer. So, so um, he asked me, um, do, so have you been in any movies? Um, I don't think he knew how it worked, like that he would have known. I would have said it already, right, if I had been in movies. But I was like, oh, okay, um, yeah. I was just in a movie called Wag the Dog. <laughs> which was a movie that had come out that year, right? Like Dustin Hoffman, it was about Hollywood. And I told him that, I, he was kind of like I said, like a Midwestern like football dude. He wasn't gonna go see that movie. It was about Hollywood, it wasn't up his alley. He hadn't seen an interview with a vampire several years earlier and Drop Dead Gorgeous would not come out for two more years. So Kirsten Dunst was not a household name, so I told him I was Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> now what's weird is, the photo of Debbie Blinder looked nothing like Kirsten Dunst. They couldn't have been, Debbie was a brunette, Kirsten was blonde. So on the off chance that he opened up like a newspaper or his eyes on the street and saw a poster, he probably would have put that together. But I don't know, I took a gamble, he was an idiot. He believed me, he believed me that I was in Wag the Dog. So a few days later he told me that he was driving to meet me from Minnesota, 10 hours. I was 16 in high school. I was in a play. I didn't have time to meet him. I was busy with play rehearsal. I played a fat gypsy in a weird musical. So I couldn't hang out with him. And more importantly, I definitely wasn't gonna have sex with him in real life. Like, that seemed dangerous to me. That seemed like a dangerous situation. So I told him, no, don't come meet me. I'm not ready for a relationship. I have to go back to my life, my gig life in New York in soon, right? And also, I'm not ready to have sex with you. If you come here, I'm not sleeping with you. Well, this enticed him more. And he said he was, in fact, coming. I didn't know how to handle it. So I acquiesced and I lied to my mom and I told her that I was going to hang out with another college friend in the city, in Chicago, because we lived in the Chicago suburbs. So I was going to drive into the city to see friends. And I remember packing a bag of stuff to go meet him, right? And the thing, the most important thing to me was what I wore for the actual first moment, right? The moment when he had to compare Debbie Blinder and Kirsten Dunst and me. So I decided on my favorite sweater that I thought looked really great, which is a big, baggy, forest green men's sweater from Structure <laughs> that my gay best friend didn't want anymore. So I wore that, and I thought nothing else about what else I would bring on the trip. I would just threw shit in the bag and went. I was very nervous to meet him, but not because he could have easily been a 45-year-old murderer. I was nervous because I thought he was going to hate me and reject me. 
I had lied to him about almost every aspect of my life, but it had not dawned on me that he could have easily been lying about every aspect of his. So this was pre-cell phone. I had no escape plan. Only like maybe two friends knew what I was doing, and they definitely didn't know where I was. So I just walked into the situation blindly. I did meet him at a mall, which was sort of my one plan so that he couldn't kill me immediately, right? (laughs) But I met him at the mall, and he was cute. He looked exactly like his photo. He was really nice and sweet and funny and friendly and flirtatious, and he didn't uh, seem to notice (laughs) that I wasn't Debbie or Kirsten and that I was wearing a men's sweater from Structure. He didn't mind. So, and you know, he was, it's like in retrospect, he was an attractive guy. I don't know why he couldn't get laid by some hot sorority girl at his school. It was super weird that he had driven this far, but he thought I was a 21-year-old fucking movie star. So I guess it makes sense that he did, right? He didn't act disappointed though, even though he should have been because I looked like a video game hermit and not like a hot lady. So, uh, but he was a gentleman about it, and we spent the day together. We went on a tourist uh, experience of Chicago, which was really fun and great. We went out to dinner. He talked to me. He was really curious about my life. He asked me about my rehearsals. I made up bullshit details that I thought happened at rehearsals, and it all sounded really legit. He didn't question me, and as the evening wore on, I felt really comfortable. I sort of corroborated some of his story. His license plate was from a college that he said he went to. There were textbooks for medical shit. It all made sense, right? We went back to his hotel room, which was the next step, right? We're enjoying each other's time. I'm 16. Even though we said on the phone that we weren't going to have sex, I know about life. I know that that's what has to happen, right? Especially if I go back to his hotel room with him, I'm not going back there to, like, do the bedding, to, like, fix his bedding. Like, I'm I'm saying by going back with him, like, I'm fucking you tonight, right? So I'm ready to do it. Let's go, right? Probably unprotected if I because I don't know I have no plan right never been in this situation before in my life except with Tim and this is nothing like the situation with Tim this is a whole Tim is not cool Tim is not a football player Tim's not a cool hot dude Tim's a loser this guy is fine we watch TV together I go into the next room the bathroom to change into my night clothes I take my duffel bag in there I discover what I have brought as pajamas yeah Now, I've never been in a situation where I'm about to have sex with a stranger. I don't know what you wear for that, and I definitely didn't pack for it. I pull out of my bag a triple XL Let It Snow night shirt. It says Let It Snow with uh, snowmen dancing in front of a Christmas scene, a child's night tea. Put it on. No choice. I'm not going out there naked, God forbid. And I'm like, all right, it's fine. He's probably going to think it's quirky. Uh, And then as I continue on with my nighttime regimen, I discover that my period has started. Yeah. And I think it was just ladies that moaned. Um, I didn't know what to do. I'd never been in that situation. I'd never been in the menstrual pre-sex scenario. Certainly not with a stranger, but just never in life, right? As adult women, we all know how we would handle that. I had no idea what to do. So I decided right then and there, I had to shove toilet paper into my underpants and not put out. Certainly wasn't going to tell him I was menstruating. That would be a bad word. (laughs) Like, what was I going to say? Period? You can't be 16 and say period to a dude. (laughs) So I just, I just went out there and we hooked up 
And I think I gave him a blowjob, and every time he tried to, like, advance, I just, like, didn't allow it. And I think I pretended to fall asleep. And that was it. And when we woke up in the morning, he was really, really mad. Uh, He said he wasn't driving to Chicago to have sex with me, but come on. Come on. He wasn't driving to Chicago to... uh, talk to me about rehearsals, right? So he was disappointed, as I would have been if I were him. I was 21 in his eyes. Why wouldn't I fuck him? So I tried to make casual conversation, make it okay. He wanted nothing to do with it. He was angry. He was giving me the silent treatment. Gone was the flirty, flirtatious, kind, sweet, funny, interested, loving guy from the night before. He was a douchebag. He wouldn't even look me in the eye. But we did have one more thing on the agenda. I think he... Felt like he didn't get what he wanted out of the trip, so he's at least going to get something out of the trip. We went to the Vietnam War Memorial Museum together. (laughs) I don't care about that shit. That was his big idea. So we walked around looking at photos of sad, dirty, dusty war while I tried to be like, whoa, violence, and like make conversation. And he wouldn't respond to me. And I felt really bad. I wish I could rewind and put out. Just be like, I'm bleeding, fuck me. Or whatever, right? Maybe not wear Let It Snow. Maybe decide to leave it in the bathroom. I I don't know. I wished I could undo it, but I couldn't. And he was really angry. And we got in our separate cars. He was going to drive back to Minnesota. I was going to drive back to Chicago. I I mean, to my my suburb of Chicago. We barely said goodbye. He didn't smile. He didn't hug me. It was really awkward. I felt like an asshole. He drove away. I took my driver's license out of the trunk of the car because I had hid it in case he found it. And I drove home. And I told some friends, and I never told any adult that this happened because I knew that this would have been like sort of a statutory situation. I mean, I lied to him and told him I was 21, so it could go to court, right? But I knew that it wasn't a good thing and that Matt... Jackson could probably get in a lot of trouble. So I never told anybody. And I felt really, really guilty about it. And I found him, or we saw each other on Instant Messenger like a few months later, and we started talking and kind of like talking the way young people do about like that weird night. And I told him everything. I told him I had my period. I told him I didn't know what to do. I told him about Debbie Blinder. I told him about Wag the Dog. He didn't care. He did not even seem to give a fuck it didn't matter one way or the other we had phone sex and then we never talked again and it was the strangest experience to realize as I continued to get older that I could have died and I wonder if he thinks about me or what he thinks and if he knows when he sees like MTV when he flips past it that he got catfished and I am constantly amazed that I put myself in that situation and that nothing bad happened except I made an enemy and that Debbie Blinder never found out I sent her fucking yearbook photo to a stranger in Minnesota. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Catfish. 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 Catfish.
So my friend Jen meets me for lunch in my office, which is in a community mental health agency on Long Island. We met in graduate school. We're both social workers and freshly minted psychotherapists working in public health. And she's going through this big emotional drama and she needs a friend and she's come to tell me about everything she's going through. She's very emotional, very intense, going through everything with me and suddenly she stops and looks at me and she says, your lips are moving. You're not even listening. And I instantly feel my face gets hot and I feel this charge of adrenaline and I, of course I'm listening. What kind of thing is that to say to me? I mean, that's crazy. But I can't admit to her that I'm trying to listen, but in reality, my mind is focused on the thing that seems to be what I'm focused on all the time these last few months, which is my clients. Like, who did I see this morning, and how did it go, and how do I think I did, and I can't tell. I have no idea how I'm doing with those people. And then I'm thinking about the people that are coming this afternoon, like the guy that's coming right after lunch. This is a guy who's mandated to come for counseling by a judge as well as do a bunch of other things to avoid going back to jail. And he looks every inch the stereotype of a person who was convicted of breaking and entering a person's skull with a 32 ounce Pepsi bottle. Um, and he's, he's this big hulking guy who he dresses like Polly Walnuts from The Sopranos you know, dripping with gold chains and misogyny. And he just, he just, every session is exactly the same. He comes in, throws the form on the desk that I have to sign that he showed up, and he crosses his arms and just stares me dead in the face and says nothing for 50 minutes. Now, I worked in psychiatry for eight years before I had this job as a creative arts therapist, so I have this persona, like I've seen the dark side, I've been to the dark, I have seen people at their worst, just bring it. I can sit here as long as you can sit here. You know, you wanna sit here and say nothing, I can do that, I can do that. On the outside, on the inside, I'm feeling like, you know, this guy could just snap me like a twig. Like this is, I'm just imagining ways that he could kill me because I feel the hostility from him just coming out in waves and when I worked in psychiatry I was a music therapist on a team with a bunch of other therapists and psychiatrists and nurses and all these people around not sitting in a room with a person staring me with dead eyes filled with hate so after him uh, I'm seeing a mom of a, a, of a teenage boy who's dealing drugs he's doing drugs and she is frantic with fear and worry about him and the last time I saw her, she had been up all night, literally driving around Long Island looking for him and finally found him staggering across the Long Island Expressway, so wasted he didn't even know that it was his own mom putting him in the back seat of her SUV and he punched her. And she's just frantic with fear and worry and I am gripped with worry and fear as well because, and this is how I am all the time in this job now for months. And it started, I remember the day that it started, I was working with a woman who had, her husband put her in the hospital again, and she's now come for counseling, and she's saying for the first time, I know I have to get out of this marriage, but if I do, I'm afraid he'll kill me. And I hear her and I'm thinking, wow, like people say therapy isn't brain surgery, you know, it's not life or death, but sometimes it is life or death. 
And I'm thinking, this is important stuff. Like, she really needs professional help. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm the help. Oh my God. I'm the help. Holy shit. I'm the one. The buck stops with me. And with that, now I know there's these conventions and these kind of formulas of ways of talking in sessions that you don't show your fear and worry. And there's the, you know, let's make a checklist. Do you have money? Do you have a safe place to go? Who can you go to? Yes, I can do all that. I can do the restating the problem, rephrasing the problem, trying to drill down a bit into her emotions. I can do all those formulaic things. It feels hollow and I feel really inadequate. And what's happening, when I go to my friends, my peers in this, we're all just new graduates out of social work school, you know, in the first couple of years, and I say, I'm freaking out about this, and people are like, oh, you're doing great. You're doing fine. So I feel, is it me? It must be, it's me. And a return to symptoms I really thought that I had, that were behind me, that I had overcome. For example, I wake up every hour like somebody pulled the fire alarm, thinking about who am I gonna see this day? What could have happened? What's happening to one of my clients? Is something terribly wrong? I try to go back to sleep and wake up every hour worrying about the people that I'm gonna see the next day and mentally rehearsing what they might talk about and what I might say in response. And then because of this, I'm sleep deprived. So I feel like I wanna start smoking. I feel like maybe that would help. And I'm sleep deprived, so I'm craving sugar all the time. So I have the, my six month review with the director of the agency and I sit down with her and the first question she asks me is, what do you feel you've gained personally from this experience so far? And I say about 30 pounds. <laughs> And then I say, I think I'm gonna have to get some outside supervision. She says, oh, stop it, of nonsense. Of, that's what I'm here for, that's my job. I get paid to help you navigate all these difficulties. Just tell me, look, whatever you're going through, it's not gonna be a big mystery to me. I have heard it all. So I say, okay, um, all right, I haven't slept through the night in four and a half months. Um, my, best, my new best friends are little Debbie, Mrs. Fields, and the entire Entenmann's family. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and my anxiety disorder, which I had thought I was dealing with, is now in full flower. And then what that means is, yeah, it's like living with somebody who calls 911 because somebody gave them a funny look or thinks they might have made a mistake or is judging them harshly, only I'm the judge, I'm the person being judged, and the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> And she says, I think you're probably gonna have to get some outside supervision. <laughs> so I line up some sessions with my old professor, well, he's not old, he's a former professor of mine, Bob. This very kind of California guy wears denim, denim shirts and denim jeans and he's very calm. I feel this laid back energy from him. It's like a poster of a wolf howling on his wall. And, <laughs> always gave me an A, so I knew he liked me. And he has this Clint Eastwood way of talking. So when he talks, you just, he just kind of pulls you in to what he's saying by lack of volume and energy. <laughs> and so I lay it all out for Bob. And he says, you want to get it right. 
You don't want anything bad to happen on your watch. You don't want people to think therapy is a waste of time. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's right. I love Bob. <laughs> then he says, you want to be an expert, but you're just a beginner. Every day feels like the first day. So you feel like a fraud. And that's a tough place to be. And I think, yeah, that's, God, I love Bob. <laughs> and he says, well, you got a problem. Because you are a fraud. You are a beginner. The only thing you can be an expert on right now is you. Look, therapy is an intimate relationship and you can either have certainty and control or you can have a real relationship. And you're gonna have to get over yourself. And I'm thinking, I hate Bob. <laughs> Bob is probably right. So now, I'm gonna have to spend, uh, you know, I'm gonna be here a while, I think, working out my issues with Bob. But okay, he does give me some practical help for that mental obsess, for this obsessing, the, the constant thinking, thinking, thinking about what to say and what other people might say. He says, I'll give you a mantra. Stay open. Turn your anxiety into curiosity. Turn your worry into wonder. And I, first I think, yeah, okay. Like, I wonder if I'm gonna read about my client's son in Newsday tomorrow morning on the front page. Like, I wonder if this is the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. But I do find that I need to stop doing that obsessing thing, so I start doing that. I start doing this mantra. Stay open, turn your anxiety into curiosity, turn your worry into wonder. Stay open, turn your anxiety into curiosity, turn your worry into wonder. So here I am sitting with this mom of the teen, and I actually think I have a little bit of good news for her because I, I think I may have come up with a way to get her kid in treatment and maybe even pay for it. Uh, so I'm waiting for her to give me a chance to, to tell her about that. And she's carrying on about her stress, of course. She's venting, and all of a sudden she stops talking. She says, your lips are moving. Are you even listening? And of course, I, I'm, I'm so embarrassed because I realize that, I, yes, I'm listening, but I'm also doing these mantras in the back of my head, like, stay open, turn your anxiety into curiosity. And apparently, I wasn't able to contain my lips from moving, and I feel my face gets hot, I feel that embarrassment, I say, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, I am listening. I'm also really worried that I don't have the life experience, I don't have the professional experience to really help you, and I'm worried that you're here and what I'm doing is just never going to be enough, and I feel that way in this job a lot, because I'm, I'm new, and it feels like every day's the first day and I don't know how I'm doing. And she says, that's how I feel as a mom. Like, I don't know if I'm getting it right. I don't know if this is all my fault. Every day feels like the first day. I think I've got it figured out, and I don't. And we bond 
Maybe for the first time over this shared sense of inadequacy and feeling overwhelmed and uncertain about how to do our roles. And that was almost 30 years ago. That was the start of a very different, more honest, and really much more effective way of being present with people as they struggle through emotional problems and emotional difficulties, trying to find their strength and solve their problems. There is no certainty, there's just discovery. But there is one thing I am certain of, and that is I will probably spend my entire life trying to get over myself. Well, thank you. Shogren behind me now, and we just heard from Jude Trader Wolf. You can find her at judetraderwolf.com and also mostlytruethings.com. That's Jude's own storytelling show out in Long Island. Between Jude and Jen, we heard a little interstitial called 22 Catfish by our own Jeff Barr. And if you have been prostrate on the floor, praying that our third story today is told by someone whose first name does not start with a J. You are shit out of luck. Shit out of luck. Because the last story today comes from none other than the wonderful John Flynn. He told this one at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. It is John, Mickey, Fick, and Flynn, my friends, with a story we call Disrobe. So uh, the first college I went to was a place called Bard College in upstate New York. Have any of you guys heard of that? Yes. Okay, yeah. It's uh, For those of you who haven't, it's a very sort of like hippie liberal school where like, you know, people wear a lot of black and drink coffee and write papers about like the role of women in Greek mythology. Uh, and I... <laughs> And I chose Bard because, like, when I was a senior in high school and went on my, like, tour of prospective colleges, someone outside of the cafeteria for their senior project had built a uh, 12-foot hydraulic bong. 
Um, where like you would give someone the weed and they would run 12 feet and you give them a mark and then the smoke would just get shot into your lungs. And uh, I found out they got an A. So I was like, this seems like the perfect place for me to go to school. And, you know, at that point, I wasn't quite out of the closet yet. So I was like, this, this I think, could be the place where I'm free to just discover myself and explore my sexual leanings. So, uh, you know, I get to school and then, uh, I'm, uh, you know, my roommate shows up. He's this guy from Connecticut named Ian. We're talking, you know, we're a little getting to know each other. And after like 10 minutes, he just goes, can I ask you a question? I'm like, sure. And he goes, you're not a fag, are you? And I like lower my voice and like straighten out my wrists. And I'm like, no, that Sweeney Todd poster was a gift from my girlfriend. Uh, Why do you ask? And then he goes on to tell me that when he was in high school, he and and some of his friends had formed a gang with the express mission to go fag bashing on the weekends. Because as we all know, going fag bashing on a weeknight is totally gay. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was like, all right, I guess I'm not going to quite leap out of the closet just yet. Uh, so, you know, I sort of like stayed in my own little prison, spent many afternoons just like walking along like Route 9, just on these very long walks, listening to like all my show tunes because I didn't want to listen to them in our room. Um, now, despite uh, the fact that Ian was an aggressive homophobe, uh, we got along pretty well. <laughs> um, I just, I'm a people person. Um, and, you know, Ian had actually done some theater in his high school. So, uh, you know, a lot of times he would get drunk and we would sing Anything Goes together because Cole Porter brings everybody together. And then I got Ian to audition for a show that I was stage managing, and he got cast in it. And the show was an original piece uh, that a, a fellow student had written. She was like from Minnesota, and she read a bunch of statistics about poverty. And so she wrote what she called a choreo poem that was called, Yo, the Veto Papers. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, you know, she'd, as I said, she'd read some statistics about poverty in the Bronx, and so she created this thing where it was like a cast of 12, and there was like just one chair that had a leather jacket, and there were five different people who would assume the, the character of Vito by putting on the jacket, and then they would do some monologue about like, robbing someone or raping bitches or whatever and then in the midst of that story everyone else who was like all in black would like slowly come out and like sort of like mime dance the sort of like this is you know like and it would be like this was a rape (laughs) thank you liberal arts education Um, and you know and I was a stage manager and because it was a very raw gritty choreo poem not like the polished ones we're all so used to um (laughs) You know, like, I did all of my stuff in plain view of the audience. Like, that's how gritty this was. Um, and, you know, like, the, the sort of edgiest T-shirt I had was, like, Rocky Horror. Uh, so, like, Ian loaned me, like, one of his prized possessions, which was, like, a Clash T-shirt, which he, like, let me wear. So that's, like, a really big deal. So now the drama department had no faith in Yo! The Vito Papers. So um, we only had one performance, and that was the night before Thanksgiving. <laughs> So they're like, good luck, go give it to them. Um, so, you know, so the day of the show, that, that sort of afternoon, I like get ready and like to head out to Route 9 to go on one of my epic walks. And as I'm heading out there, I run into uh, my RA, this guy named Garrett, who lived down the hall from me. And Garrett was a senior, and he was like a drama major with like a, a concentration in directing. 
you know, and I thought Garrett was like really smart and like knew a lot. And I thought he was like kind of cute and whatever. Um, and so like we run into each other and he and I'm like, oh, what do you do? Like we were just like on the, <laughs> on the highway. And he's like, oh, I used to go on walks like this all the time when I was a freshman. I was like, I'm a freshman and that's what I'm doing right now. Like oh, we have so much in common. Um, so he's like, oh, do you mind if I walk with you? And I was like, let's do this. Uh, so, you know, as we're walking, I'm like, so are you, why aren't you going home for Thanksgiving? And he's like, oh, my mom lives in Seattle. It's too far to go. And I'm like, oh, I get it. And then he sort of like sighs, gives this big heavy sigh, like, ask me the next question you want to ask. So I'm like, why don't you go to visit your dad? And then he tells me the story about how when Garrett was eight, his father came out of the closet, admitted he was gay. Ten years later, or several years later, Garrett's father's lover had passed away, and his father got very depressed. And when Garrett was 18, he came home one day to find that his father had hanged himself. So I was like, wow, so there's nowhere to go there. Um... So we sort of like walked in silence for like the next 30 minutes and then we like got back to campus and I like thanked him for sharing that story with me. And I said, you know, if you're not doing anything tonight, there is the premiere performance of Yo! The Veto Papers. I think there's going to be beer and pizza afterwards. And he's like, maybe I'll join you. Uh, so, you know, Yo! The Veto Papers has its glorious opening and closing night. There were, uh, as I said, 12 people in the cast and five people in the audience. <laughs> So it didn't feel like a triumph. But then Garrett was one of the people, and afterwards we invited everyone to join us for beer and pizza. Uh, and so, you know, like we're all in the lobby getting drunk and just stuffing our faces. And, you know, talking. I was talking to Garrett, like, what did you think? And, you know, like any pretentious theater director person, he's like, well, if I had choreographed this choreo poem, this is what I would have done. And I, I was like, you're so smart. Um, so at one point, Garrett had some cheese on his lips. So I go, oh, you have some cheese on your lip. To which he goes, oh, yeah? <laughs> he goes, like, real heavy on the lick. And I'm like, oh, how, uh, how seductive of you. And he goes, yeah? How'd you like to come back to my room and fuck my brains out? <laughs> and it is really easy to sweep me off my feet. Because <laughs> I was like, all right, let's do this. So, uh... So we're heading back to our dorm, and the whole way there, I'm just thinking, like, tonight I'm going to, like, heal Garrett with my lovemaking. Like, I'm just going to, like, all, the, all of his past woes, I'm going to, like, we're going to overcome them tonight. I'm going to do it. Uh, so we get to his room, and he closes the door, and the first thing he does is he picks up the phone, and he calls some number, and he goes, and he leaves a message. He goes, hey, honey, it's me. Uh, you know that guy I was telling you about? Well, he's here right now, and we're going to start fooling around, so when you get this, why don't you come on over and join us? Then he hangs up, and I was like, uh, I'm sorry, who was that? And he goes, oh, that was my girlfriend. But don't worry, it's cool. She's black. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, so Garrett and I start fooling around, uh, and I'm going down on him. As I'm doing that, at one point, Garrett like takes his hands, and he like puts them both on the top of my head, and is like, pressing my head down. Like... I didn't have it all in my mouth already. And I'm like, okay, whatever, some weird power thing you've got going on. And, you know, it was late, and I was pretty drunk, and whatever, and this has been going on, and I was, like, ready to come up for air, and he, but he's just, like, keeps pressing down, and I'm, like, you know, like, trying to give the signs, where I'm like, oh, um, you know, I'm, like, hitting his thighs, and he just starts, like, thrusting and, like, like upping the ante, and I'm like, no, but really, like, we've got to, you know, like, I'm just, and then I start, like, sort of, dry heaving a little bit and then he goes yeah yeah do it no. <laughs> do you want me to stop now I feel like 
All right. No, so I do it. I throw up all over his junk. And as I said, I had a lot of beer and pizza. So there's just like beer and like half digested cheese. And then like that happens and he like removes my head, takes the vomit and use that as lubricant to jerk himself off. You're welcome. He finishes, just grabs something, wipes himself off, and he's like, uh, that was great, I'll be right back. I'm just gonna jump in the shower. So he leaves, and I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Like, what kind of sick fetish should I like find myself in? And then I was like, how do you even know that's a fetish? Like, at what point are you like, do you know what would be awesome right now? Stomach acid. Um, so then I'm like, wait, he's got a girlfriend who might be showing up any second. I don't know. I gotta, I gotta go. So like, I go to get dressed, and unfortunately, uh, the thing that Garrett had first used to wipe himself off with was, was my roommate's T-shirt. So I was like, well, just gotta leave that behind. Um, so, but luckily, I was just down the hall, so it didn't really matter. So like, I go down the hall, I just get into my room without thinking. I turn on the light, and Ian was asleep, but the light comes on. So he just like wakes up and he goes, "Hey, what the fuck happened to you?" And then he like, he's like, his vision comes to, and he like looks at me, he goes, what the hell happened to your neck? And I look in the mirror, and I think, and I have like three big purple like hickeys right here. And I like freeze, and he goes, what the fuck just happened to you? Who were you with? And I just, I'm terrible at thinking of things on my feet, so I just go, uh, Garrett? And like Ian's jaw drops. And I'm like, oh, fuck, on top of everything else, I'm about to get hate-crimed. Uh, and then he just starts laughing. And I'm like, uh, right, this is funny, isn't this hilarious? All right, let's go to bed. All right, we're done. We go to bed. He wakes up and leaves before I get up. I go home, have a very turtlenecky filled Thanksgiving. Um, come back a few days later to our dorm room. Then Ian comes back, and you know we're sort of just like, hey, how was your Thanksgiving? Oh, cool. And then he goes, um, I just want to tell you, uh, when I was home, I disbanded my gang. And I was like, really? I didn't know you could do that. Um, what happened? And he goes, well, we were having a meeting. And I realized what we were doing was wrong. So I got up in the middle of it, and I said, this is not what I created. <laughs> then I took off my robes, <laughs> threw them on the ground, and I walked out of there. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you formed a gang to go fag bash it, and you had robes? <laughs> like, were they like a silk robe, or was it like a terry cloth to wipe up the blood? Like, I didn't actually say that. But I just was like, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And he goes, no problem. And then he goes, oh, by the way, um, I'm going to need my T-shirt back. And I was like, I'm going to need to buy you a new one. And I'm not going to explain why. <laughs> thank you all very much.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Black Honey behind me now, and I am now going to read a list of all the places Risk is soon to appear. We are in Denver, Colorado on the 14th of October. We'll be in New York and Los Angeles on the 22nd of October. On the 6th of November, we'll be in Atlanta, Georgia. The theme is nasty. We're still taking pitches. Please pitch us, folks. From Atlanta, Georgia, your nasty pitches at Kevin at Ristashow.com. Then on the 14th of November, we're in Milwaukee. The theme is fuck this. Again, pitch us your fuck this stories, Milwaukee folks. We will be in Cleveland, Ohio on the 21st of November. That's at the Cleveland Public Library. That is actually a free show. The theme is so emotional that night, just like the Whitney Houston song. Uh, Salt Lake City, we are in your city on December 12th. The theme that night is Twisted. Pitch us your twisted stories, Salt Lake Sitchins. You can always find tips on how to pitch a high-stakes, emotional, compelling, or very, very funny and unusual story at risk-show.com slash submissions. Also... Please be aware that we teach storytelling as well at our school, thestorystudio.org. There's one-on-one training there over Skype. There's also our video course that you can take in your own time. There are the corporate workshops we teach. There's a lot to find at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Abraham Lincoln said that.